Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Sanctuary. Welcome to everybody who is watching online. I want to begin by reading a passage in the book of Acts chapter 8. This is uh, one of the first accounts we get of what this resurrection community looks like, what this early church, this, these people who were um, going around setting up these outposts of heaven uh, in response to what had happened on that Easter Sunday. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting on his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Philip, by the way, is one of these first followers of Jesus. Uh, He said, go to that chariot. The spirit told Philip to go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot heard, uh, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Uh, and then it, uh, we read the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. And then in verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, tell me please who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This series that we started at Easter in these six weeks that we're in right now of um, talking about what it means to be people marked by Easter, marked by the resurrection, Easter people living in a good Friday world, people who are asking what does it mean to raise life in a culture of death. Uh, We want to um, drill down specifically at this fascinating moment of regathering, of re-entry, coming off a year, an unprecedented year, to ask, okay, Lord, this year, what does it look like to be marked by this moment of being freed from the fear of death? This moment um, of Easter where we kind of claim and our identity as people who are joining with God in the renewal of all things, who are demonstrating and announcing the way of Jesus. And so today, I want to talk about witnessing, bearing witness to the Easter story. What does it mean for us to share the story? And my hope is that uh, this message will stir your affections for God, um, which then will stir your affections and love for your neighbor. That this will do far more than just give us some tools to make sense of how to be a people who boldly share our story. So how do we intentionally witness as a community? Uh, Maya Angelou, she says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. I think one of the things that we feel for all those who are here, who are watching, who are followers of Jesus, which is most of us or many of us, um, is we feel shame, like cultural shame about being a follower of Jesus. Um, it's like you go, I feel like for a lot of us, our story um, involves either like a lot of hypotheticals or this has literally happened. You're like, oh, I want to go tell people or announce that I'm a Christian. And you're just waiting for the responses. Oh, I didn't know you were a fundamentalist bigot. 
Like, oh, very interesting. Now, now, the difference between guilt and shame is really important. Guilt is about doing something wrong. I've done something wrong, and I feel bad about that. Shame is about hiding who you are. And I think we feel a lot of pressure for a number of reasons. We feel pressure to hide. So Paul, who's one of these, again, first followers of Jesus, just like Philip that we just read, who's going around announcing the story, bearing witness to what God has done, sharing the good news of God's love, of God's kingship, of the way of life. And he, uh, in, the, in uh, Romans, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Paul, um, you know, kind of affirms that not only was shame, <laughs> not only is shame an issue in our day and age when it comes to sharing the good news of the gospel, but it was an issue uh, in his day as well. He writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. My guess is that he wrote this is because people were tempted to feel shame. And then he says, because it is the power of God. Because it is the power of God. He had this conviction that the good news of Jesus' resurrection, the good news that God was making all things new, the good news that we were saved by grace through faith, the good news that God was on, is on the throne, it brings power and we should not be ashamed of the good news and bringing that to our larger world. It's important to remember um, that when we talk about sharing our faith and being people who bear witness to this, um, that one of the cultural tactics that's used by others, and, and I find more often actually by our own hearts, like by our own minds and the voices inside our head, is that like you really shouldn't evangelize. In fact, some of you already may feel really squeamish about this subject matter this morning. Like, we should not proselytize. I just want to say just very clearly this morning, like, I just fundamentally reject that idea. Mostly because everybody, and I mean everybody, in some way or another, whether they are fully aware of it or not, are trying to do, to do this. Everyone is trying to get people to believe things. I was just listening to some cultural analysis on this podcast the other day, and they were saying that in places like Australia and Europe, uh, in these largely post-Christian places, so this is commentary actually on the U.S., but they were um, talking about how in these very secular places, there isn't the kind of zeal that exists in the U.S. to tear down people's faith. But in the U.S., there's almost like this revolutionary spirit, which I think kind of exists in the ethos of our very nation. But it's like this religious impulse also exists, just as an example, within secularism. It is alive and well, where you see in secular spaces in our culture, this deep drive and sort of proselytizing to tear down this evangelical spirit exists everywhere. Think of marketing. People trying to own, literally are trying to own mind space. Like large conversations about, you know, how do we make, um, how are we able to monetize things even in people's sleep? Alexa and Siri are always listening so you can be convinced to care about a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter so you can buy things that you don't need. Everyone is trying to convert people. There is the gospel of fashion and the gospel of finance. So I just reject this idea that Christians should stay silent and not put forth their worldview. So here's the good news about what Easter people want to share. Other stories just 
aren't as good as our story. I really believe that. It actually, can I just say this? It feels like really good to say that out loud. Like the, and I, I know this is so not okay. That is like not an okay thing to say. But the, the Christian story we believe is actually the all-encompassing story of the whole world. It's the true story of the whole world. And I think at some real base primal level, when it's explained, people understand this. It resonates on a deep level. E- even if, again, they don't have language or they're rebellious against that, every story won't ultimately work over time. Neil Postman, he says uh, in his essay, um, what was it called? Science and the Story We Need. He says, In the end, science does not provide the answers that most of us require. Its story of our origins and of our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, eh, probably by accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Moreover, the science God has no answer to the question, why are we here? And to the question, what moral instructions do you give us? The science God maintains silence. For those of you who don't know, by the way, who Neil Postman is, it just would be important to point out, this man is not a follower of Jesus. There is more hypocrisy in the world. More hypocrisy in the world than there is in the church. Here's why I say that. No one I know lives like the world is an accident. You know anybody who actually lives that way? They may say that. They may believe that fervently in their heart. But everyone lives like there's worth and intentionality and love. But we live like, I mean, we live like there's morality. We live like this stuff ultimately matters. The secular story just doesn't provide the resources that we need as, as a human race to thrive. George Orwell says this, I thought of a rather cruel trick I once played on a wasp. He was sucking jam on, on my plate, and I cut him in half. He paid no attention, merely went on with his meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It is the same with modern man. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. This is George Orwell, again, decidedly not a Christian. Author of 1984, writing about what he saw decades and decades ago of what was happening to modern man. It's like culture is like shoving ourselves. We're shoving ourselves full with experiences, with sex and food and money and pleasure. And we just don't realize it's trickling out of the back of our souls. We've cut away the most important parts of what it means to be human, of what it means to be alive. (laughs) I realized that was a very startling image for us this morning. I was really tracking with Andrew in his sermon. He started talking about guys cutting wasps open. I was kind of out. Stay with me. Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor says this. He says, we desire to gather together the scattered moments of meaning into some kind of whole. 
some kind of hole. We're always trying to place ourselves in this larger narrative and make sense of our lives. We live in a world that says all that matters is what we can see and what we can touch and what we can feel. And ultimately then the transcendent doesn't matter until it suddenly does. It's funny how many stories there are right now about the supernatural. So many people have commented on this over the last decade superhero movies, shows. It's like everything around us has this element of wanting to like conjure some transcendence. It's like the more secular we get, the more these types of things show up. We're looking for the transcendent. There's this amazing meme that I've wanted to and maybe still will turn into a whole sermon series. Um, and it's, uh, it's called the religious... Uh, I hate... <laughs> here, I'm going to put it up on the screen. I hate religion, but get lost in my own irony starter pack. And you just see all of these things like crystals and I'm not even sure who the gentleman is in the middle and tarot cards and incense and all of this, this sense of wanting to connect with the transcendent. I don't know if you've walked into an urban outfitters lately, um, but my gosh, it's just everywhere. You see these in these small corner shops on the south side of Providence of just whole shops devoted to tarot and devoted to incense and devoted to these sorts of like transcendent ideas because I don't really like religion anymore. All the while, I'm leaning into these particular artifacts that will hopefully essentially connect me with, well, what religion in some sense tries to do. John Steinbeck, famous author, says, no story has power nor will it last until we feel in ourselves that it is true and true of us. And that's the good news of our story. When we look at Jesus in our place in that story, it begins to ring true of our experience. The sense of transcendence that we're trying to connect with is, is in so many ways about us placing our story in a larger meta-narrative. And so we have this story, right? We are created good. The world was created good and is broken and Jesus has redeemed all things. We were created for relationships with ourselves and with each other and with God and these things are broken and we all feel that. And so we feel this sense of, I don't know who I am in the world and I want to make my relationships work, but I'm always screwing them up and I want to see the world made right. This is why I march and protest and, and post what I post and these longings Amongst, amongst all sorts of other things. I mean, the beauty binds us together, but these aches and longings, they bind us together. There is this just ache that we have for things to be made right and for us to connect our larger story with what's happening. I've shared the story before of connecting with a friend of mine who she was just um, trying to get me to understand, just to understand, she was trying to um, get me to help her really understand the, quote, essence of the Christian story. And I just felt really led to share about these two things. And again, you've heard me say, say these things often. But I just began to describe the, um, in almost non-religious terms, imagine if you knew at the depth of your being that you were loved. Imagine if you knew nothing good in this world was wasted. Imagine then if you are also like free from this fear of death. And so I began to basically unpack the cross and the resurrection to her in these very sort of like humanist almost terms to help her kind of understand. Imagine what it would be like to have that kind of security. And, and very, I mean, it just caught me so by surprise when she started to weep. Or in this bar, it's like, 
10.30 at night or something, and she just began to weep. I, I can't. I, I, like, I just remember the noise of the room around me, our friends over at the other table, and she's just like, I can't imagine feeling that way and having that kind of confidence. And her line I will never forget, which was, I mean, that would change everything about how I felt about the world, where I fit, what I'm a part of, the greater mission and call in my life, what it would mean to walk through all the failures and aches and brokenness in the world. I I share all of this and that the desire that so many of us have or so many of our friends have who aren't followers of Jesus for transcendence, the desire to be a part of the larger story, a desire to make sense of this world. We can, Easter people, we can have confidence, confidence in the good news. So I want to invite you to turn to um, a passage, First uh, Peter 3. This passage is brilliant. And this is actually where I want to park um, the rest of the sermon in First Peter 3.15. If you read with me. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is so good. This is uh, so neglected. Revere, first of all, it says, revere Christ as Lord. Everything, everything starts here. I love this line. I can't remember even what author it was at this point, and I can't remember how many times I've repeated it. But it's just the first question for me when it comes to talking about sharing our story as Easter people is, are you smoking what you are selling? Like, is this real and alive in your heart? The problem might be that people um, aren't asking. Like, one of the big issues might be in your life is because you're not revering Christ as Lord. There's not something central. Years ago, we, uh, we did a little series on, on sharing your faith, and I just put pieces of duct tape on all the pews. And it was just this, like, goofy idea of, like, maybe some of us like, we need to actually, like, stop talking. And we need to make sure if we're revering Christ as Lord, this should be coming out of so many other places in our life. I don't think it really worked very well, but. The starting point is here. The starting point is always here. This is the starting point for biblical justice. This is the starting point for moving in the world in grace and beauty and faith. This is the starting point for the Christian vision of excellence in the world. This is the starting point for any sort of love, which is, by the way, bearing witness and sharing our story is rooted in this understanding that we have of volitional love. Revering Christ as Lord. It produces this supernatural hope when we are fully leaning on Christ. There's a bunch of stories I would love to tell, but I can already tell I'm going to run out of time this morning. But there, I, I'm sure you have moments in your life. Uh, I am thinking of, of one in particular of a buddy of mine who, um, when the economic crash happened in 2008, uh, and this person just lost so much, had friends who were just 
in utter despair. Divorce is happening all around him because, I mean, people were losing half, two-thirds, three-fourths of their income, of their investment, everything they had given their life and money to, and energy to, um, investment bankers, hedge fund managers. For those of you who remember that moment, it was frightening. And it was hard for so many. The suicide rate of like people in high finance in, in Manhattan was through the roof. And my friend was shaken and it was hard. But the biggest witness that came out of that situation was that everybody seemed to notice how ultimately unrattled he was. It was like, yeah, this is brutal and hard, but this obviously is not where my hope is. When we revere Christ as Lord, it begins to have this effect where people begin to take notice of the rootedness and groundedness and security. I think this is why my friend that night years ago asked me in the bar. People will inquire of you. We have this place, uh, you know, moving on in the passage, doing this with gentleness and respect in a time where everyone is outraged. Like we need such good behavior that when we are attacked, and, and let's be clear, in a lot of ways, in, in some ways, de, you know, it feels almost deserved because some of the ways that followers of Jesus seem to be sort of acting in the public eye. But in so many ways, there is, this is just a, a moment where the Christian story, you, again, we feel this sort of pressure of cultural shame on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or at least some of us. And it's like in those moments of attack and slander and outrage that we act with gentleness and respect. So, when, when do people actually, you know, in the city of Providence or Newport or in Rhode Island in this region, when do they want to talk about Jesus apart from never? I want to hand this phrase to you that uh, my friend um, John Tyson talks a lot about. It's like this idea of relational positioning. Relational positioning. So you you are, um, I think think some of those pastors like to talk about like mission, like being missional. I think a lot of times they're talking out of their own internal, you know, sort of guilt because they find themselves doing mostly like church work within the body of Christ. And they sort of forget as they're pushing, like, we got to be missional onto everybody else. Forgive me if you've never heard that phrase before. We push that on, on others when others are actually already in the workforce out with friends and people and life and and going to class with others who are not followers of Jesus. There's no need to go and send. It's the sense of like, are you positioned and equipped in the place that you are to bear witness to the story of the resurrection, which of course is the context that Peter's writing into. So relational positioning, there will be key moments when people's secular scaffolding falls apart and they realize that they don't know how to make sense of life. So position yourselves with Jesus as Lord, which means you're doing your work with excellence. You're doing your best to live a life of kindness and grace. And so when people come to you and they ask, what did you do this weekend? I mean, everything just sort of starts with, oh, I went to church on Sunday. I mean, you're in. Like, the conversation is alive, or you're going to get the, oh, okay, and we're, what else did you do? So when things, for instance, like a personal crisis hits, when that friend 
like cheats on their spouse, when there's death in the family, when that kid gets into trouble and they're asking, like, do you have a youth program? Like, is there anybody that I could talk to at your whole church? We're not really religious, but like, Andrew, could we sit down with you? I cannot tell you how many stories I have that relate to that. Just being positioned, even as a pastor, like calls from baristas that I sort of know, like friends who are working in finance in the city who like basically know like a bit, like I do something with church. They think it's more like a nonprofit. And they're like, hey, do you have anybody who could help? I don't know how to, 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 to deal with this situation here. Because look, life is hard for everyone, not just followers of Jesus. And there are these moments where we can become the reference point for humility and for grace and for healing in their life. Two, there is... Um, so there's personal crisis, too. There's cultural crisis, right? We're in one now. There are moments when the rules around conversation related to religion and faith and meaning and love, the rules like you don't talk politics and religion at the dinner table, all of a sudden get suspended. They get suspended. And so we have to be, what Peter's saying is we have to be prepared in advance so that when these moments come, we can speak into it. Oh, I've thought about that. I've thought about that. Most people are living on sound bites. So when someone has a thoughtful, nuanced way forward, it's actually incredibly compelling. Forgiveness in this moment, right? In all of this moment of like cancel culture, everyone keeps talking about and waxing poetic about to have a posture of Christian peacemaking and the way of Jesus, that kind of forgiveness. In a culture of so much apathy in certain circles, right? Like we would have a vision of justice and what justice looks like. These open up moments for us. Oh, where did you get that understanding? How did you make sense of X, Y, and Z? Oh, let me tell you about where that comes from. Three, in terms of relational positioning, there's just simply major milestones. When there's like new, there's a job transfer, the kids are going off to college. Right, these major milestones that happen in our life, being prepared to help walk people through that. And then number four, there is just wonder and longings. I've experienced this a lot, like just in the art scene, when a great film comes out or there's a, like music or book, you know, like there's these like, people are talking about their longings and meetings and then rearranging their life in some way. There's this opportunity that we have to actually connect the dots for people to connect the dots for people. And again, we do all of this as we position ourselves with gentleness and with respect. We do this with love, Peter talks about. All right, why is it in this, like, it's like you turn on the news right now, you just get two of the most obnoxious people in the world to fight in public over an issue. Like, and this becomes like the way in which we understand dialogue. But as followers of Jesus, if we're entering everything with gentleness and respect, that in and of itself will bear witness to who is Lord of our heart. Right, we can, we can uh, uh, come to people with, oh, I'm so sorry those people have misrepresented Christianity. We don't come like Pharisees with rocks in our hands. Remember, Jesus can drive out the Pharisees and drive out the shamers and still speak truth. And still speak truth. So we have to be people who, in light of all of this, are understanding, our eyes are open to people's spiritual journey. To be able to be people who can um, look for sort of cracks in people's um, 
the way people, I think, insulate themselves and build walls up around those bigger questions of meaning and love. Again, we do all of this for our desire to see people step into the path of life. So we begin where people are. We're ready to share and have a reason for the hope within us. We recognize that God's the one that convicts people. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we speak truth in love. And we speak truth in love. And we can do all of this, right? Through asking strategic questions. To be people, people who, to be people who love our neighbor and love others is to be inquisitive and curious about where they are. And to be people who love others is to know the love that we can point them to. So we ask strategic questions because we care. Jesus did this all of the time. He's asking about how people are. One of my favorite questions to ask, I don't remember where I picked this up years ago, but it's like, just, oh, how's that going for you? Like, how are things working out? How's that working out? I see you just made partner. Like, you just started that company. Like, how is that working out for you? Jesus asked questions like, are you thirsty? Thirsty? Uh, come to me. I have something to drink. <laughs> oh, you've been married a few times? How's that working out? Colossians 4, uh, verse 5 says, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always, always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Full of grace. Full of grace of grace, right? Shaming the slander of our, of our critics. One of the most important things that we can do is develop um, an ethical vision, like to, to be people who have, again, like are prepared to give an answer. What does it say again here in Colossians? Like making the most of every opportunity so you'll know how to answer everyone. Like having an ethical vision for your life and for your work. Right, like, here, like going to your boss, or maybe it's just having this in your heart. Maybe you don't need to always go to your boss with this. But I've heard stories of people doing this. Like, here's, if, if this were to happen, this is where I would leave. This is what probably would get me, you know, fired. Here's how I understand the gray matter in my particular industry. Here's where I stand. Here's what's most important to me. We have this, like, vision, this preparedness for what it means to, like, walk through our daily life and work. Live such good lives, it says amongst the pagans. Live such good lives. Like, step in fully into the way of Jesus. Revering him as Lord will cause us to live these lives that are interesting, to say the least. <laughs> um, there was a, a story I heard somebody asking, um, boss was asking somebody who was being interviewed for this job, who was, he was kind of leapfrogging um, uh, one position to the next, like just this, what's going to be this huge promotion. It's a really big deal. And um, he was asked by his boss, what's the number, what's your number one value in stepping into this job? And um, this follower of Jesus who went to a buddy of mine's church said, um, look, my kids are going to come before this job. My kids are going to come before this job because he was being asked about long hours and how are you going to deal with all of this. And this boss just turned and just started, apparently started like tearing up and began to share with this person he's interviewing 
who just gave functionally the wrong answer. Right? You want to give the answer of like, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to put in extra. I'm going to go the extra mile. He, start, he, he starts confessing to this person about the ways that he has screwed up his family. Now, let me be clear. It doesn't always work like that. <laughs> that same answer could easily get many folks like fired or not going to get the job or whatever else. But it's just this understanding of I am seeing my life through the lens of Christ. I'm following the Spirit's lead into all these spaces with, a, with ready, ready to give an answer for who I am and how I see the world, not shirking back. Prepared to give an answer. Always prepared to give an answer. Not just an apologetic to a tough philosophical question. I think it's what we boil these passages down to far too often. So, in my world, asking where is God moving? Who is open? Where in your world are people being drawn to Christ? Uh, in the scriptures, it says, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So where are the people that God is drawing? Where is the Lord moving? The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolish. So who is not considering them foolish? The Father's always at work. Am I aware and awake to that? Next thing I want to say about bearing witness and sharing your story is to take responsibility. Acts 17 says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So again, my, uh, my friend John Tyson's take is that God has arranged human history in such a way to give everyone the best possible chance of knowing him. And then God, knowing you, has put you, the person that you are, because you are the best person in recorded history, in a position to reach them. That you're the best person to reach the people that are around you. I love that. It's like, it is an invitation to take responsibility, to see the unbelievable opportunity to use all of the good parts and all of the hard parts and allow God to use those to reach others. Still to this day, I am amazed that one like jacked up relationship that my wife had in high school that produced like a really unhealthy pattern in her life, like really early on, is still being used a decade later to reach people for the gospel. It has produced so much kingdom fruit, this ache and brokenness that happened in her life in high school. We have this responsibility. My job is not, um, my job as, as many of your pastor is not to come to your work to lead people to Christ. And by the way, it's also not to have a church service that is always like, always inviting people to, to Jesus. I love on the regular to give it a call and an invitation. I'm happy to do that every week even. But the responsibility of even what we're doing when we gather here isn't to go and reach your friend and to share your story. I don't know your story. And my story, if I were to get up here and share that this, this morning, is not going to connect, and that's not what God's going to use to reach the people in your life. You are priests, the scripture says, with a parish. You are on mission. And so when Jesus says, I will make you 
He says to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. I think too often we think of like fly fishing, right? We think of like a singular person just like throwing a line. No, in the New Testament, it's nets. It's nets, like throw out the net. We are connected with people all over. Cast these nets, invite people into the flow of your life into the web of relationships and love that they will get relationally caught up in the good news of the gospel. And by the way, if you're like right now going, I don't know if they would get actually caught up in God's love by walking alongside me. I don't know if that net exists. Well, then go back and ask, is Jesus becoming Lord of my life? Am I revering Jesus as Lord of my life or not? Is your house full of kindness and generosity? I always hate talking strategy of like how to reach people when people aren't filled with overflow, to overflow with the love and grace of God. Some of us, like this talk, I'm hoping this does this, that this simple talk will provoke you to ask questions about your relationship with Jesus, about your love. It says in Philemon 6, 1, I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. That relational net that you are being invited to throw out there, is that there? Is Christ alive in your heart? I was trying to, trying to think of like, you know, great figures of the faith. And I want to go down my like classic list. Like, is there, Andrew, like, you know, ultimately, if I'm referring Christ as Lord, there's going to be some Mr. Rogers energy right in my heart. This Presbyterian like pastor who just exuded kindness through a kid's television programming. Is there Martin Luther King energy in my life? Is there Mother Teresa? Am I caring for the poor and introducing my kids to the poor? Am I even in feeling called to reach a part of this city that is actually a little more affluent? Am I helping in their salvation and redemption by connecting them with the poor and the oppressed and the hurting? Heck, is, is there even some Justin Bieber energy in my house? Can we talk about this for a minute? <laughs> Never in my life thought I would say that. But I don't know if you've read uh, or seen this GQ article that just came out. I Three people send this to me. In this GQ article, if you're unfamiliar with Justin Bieber, you're, you're probably not. So in, 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 in this Justin Bieber article, it literally this came out like two, three days ago, Chance the Rapper, as a friend of his, um, the interviewer goes, if you ask Chance the Rapper why he and his friend seem so happy in an industry that tends to grind people to dust, he will answer without hesitation, quote, both of us, our secret sauce is Jesus, Chance says. Justin doesn't fake the funk. He goes to Jesus with his problems. He goes to Jesus with his successes. He calls me, ju he calls me just to talk about Jesus. This reporter goes out of his way to say um, that he is not a believer. And he says, it's beautiful to hear Justin Bieber talk about God. Quote, he is grace, he says. Every time we mess up, he's picking us back up. Every single time, that's how I view it. And so it's like, I made a mistake. I won't dwell on it. I won't sit in shame that it actually makes me want to do better. This entire article is about how this child star who made every wrong choice and tanked his life almost to the worst possible place of being deeply depressed and borderline suicidal is brought back from the brink because of Jesus. I believe in the scriptures it says he will use the foolish 
to shame the wise. That web, that net. I love this idea. This is a sermon in and of itself. Is as I think about what it means to be an Easter person, a person marked by this love, if I truly am marked by it, I will have this compulsion. Even if there's fear and anxiety and a bit of shame and not knowing how to do that, how could there not be a compulsion to be a person who bears witness to the goodness of God? So a few last things to consider as we close. One is prayer. Prayer. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It says, for, we, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Beautiful. It's like, God, open their eyes. Open their eyes. Give me opportunities. This is a role of prayer. What would happen if you took 10 minutes, right? How long it takes to like take down a small coffee, like, and just pray every morning for your coworkers' hearts, for your neighbors' hearts, for your friends' hearts. Pray, Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, would you convict them of sin? God, will you open up doors? God can do what he wants, right? But he has chose to work through us. So give God something that he can work with, like an openness in your own heart. Prayer. And then if you take nothing else from this talk, this is sort of like the, the, the crooks of it, the cornerstone that I want to say at the end, is this idea of witnessing. Look, the Holy Spirit is the prosecutor. You are the witness. In a court setting, if the witness tries to play the role of prosecutor, he's literally told by the judge to shut up. Your job is not to convict people of their sin. The Holy Spirit's job is that. Your job is to witness. So in a courtroom, what does the witness do? It comes in and says, here's what I saw. Here's what happened. I'm out. To bear witness with your life and with your words, right? Because deeds in and of themselves are not self-interpreting. Like to be able to just bear witness. This is what I know to be true about kindness and love and justice and beauty and truth and grace and thriving and excellence. This is what I know to be true because of what I've experienced. This is my story. Bear witness to what Christ has done. And then lastly, when all else fails, just remember to love. Remember, God loves these people. Love one another. We're called to love our enemies. There is no one that does not fall under the banner of love, and we are invited to join God in that love. If you don't have love, it says in the scriptures, everything else you do is just noise. Easter people ask God for his heart for the lost and for the hurting. Whenever Jesus saw the crowds, he had this visceral and emotional reaction. He grieved and he wept. We must weep for the hurting 
and for the oppressed and for the oppressor and the wayward. And we must care enough and love people enough to walk them through their journey, continuing to bear witness to the resurrection. I leave you with this. Romans 10, just as some conviction as we go. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. Lord Jesus, to my sisters and brothers who are feeling a a conviction to revere Christ as Lord in their life, like a renewal of their faith in this moment, Lord, I pray that you show them the way. I pray for those who feel just so unprepared like they, they, they don't have a vision for what it is to like live the rest of their life outside of a Sunday space or a home church for you. God, will you lead them in the way they need to go in this next season? For those that struggle with gentleness and respect, it's like vitriol and defensiveness and fear eke out in every post and in every conversation, Lord, would they receive your gentleness and kindness in their life? Lord Jesus, for those that feel kicked down and slandered, would you give them an extra measure of love and mercy? Would they follow you to the cross, Lord? Help us to be people who love the world enough to share the good news of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray.